chapter 24 today. Before we read the, the text, it would be helpful, helpful to give you maybe what you could call just a, a brief road map for the next few chapters. 1 Samuel 24 is the beginning of a three-chapter section that gives us a detailed insight into David's character. So as readers of 1 Samuel, we've known for a while that David is the Lord's chosen king, that David is the man after God's own heart. But beginning here in chapter 24, we get a, we get a deeper look. We get a front row seat, so to speak, as to how God is continuing to shape David's character. And let's be clear, David is not perfect. Not, not in the least. And the Bible doesn't pretend that he is. But, as we'll see over and over in the next three chapters, David's heart is soft toward the Lord. David's heart is soft toward the Lord. And that, friends, will make all the difference. So with that roadmap in view, let's turn our attention to this text. 1 Samuel 24. Please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author beginning in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. See, my Father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. 
As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. Father, what grace it is to be able to come together as the body of Christ and to hear from the word of God and to know that what we hear as we read the Scriptures, is the very voice of God. That these words are Your words. Complete, perfect, pure, without error. They will not lead us astray. But they will lead us in the path of godliness and righteousness and life. What grace this is, God, to gather and sit under Your Word. We do pray now, Father, that You would open our ears that we might hear, that You would open our eyes, that we might see, that You would soften our hearts so that we might be convicted where we need to be convicted, that we might be encouraged where we're weak, that we might be admonished where we are idle, and that we might be built up, Father, in the faith that will surely keep us to the last day. Father, pray that You would give me the grace to speak faithfully and clearly from Your Word, which is how it ought to be spoken. Pray that Your people would have discernment, God, to know the truth from error and to hold fast to what is good. Father, we love You. We marvel at the fact that You have given us Your Word and that in giving us Your Word, You have given us, Father, all truth that we might know You and worship You. Give us grace now, we ask, confident in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what seemed like an oasis of rest was actually a crucible of faith. You'll remember that chapter 23 ended with David arriving at the strongholds of En Gedi, which was literally an oasis in the desert. You can still go there today if you travel to Israel. It is an oasis in the desert surrounded by barren, lifeless soil. There in the middle is fresh water, fertile soil, and a refreshing place to take refuge. That's where David comes at the end of chapter 23. So perhaps as David comes and falls down weary beside the refreshing waters of En Gedi, he thinks to himself, at last, a moment to breathe. Well, chapter 24 says, think again. Think again. Saul is gone for all of a single verse. Did you notice how quickly the narrative moves from the end of chapter 23 to the beginning of chapter 24? Saul goes to fight the Philistines, but there's no report on the battle. There's no update on how it went. In fact, there's hardly a break at all. Saul goes to fight, then he comes right back. A single verse passes. One verse. And Saul is right back on the hunt. So much for rest. 
so much for refuge in this oasis. David may have come to this refreshing place, but it's anything but restful. Instead, what David encounters here is a crucible of faith. And ultimately, friends, that's what 1 Samuel 24 is about. It's about the testing of David's faith. That's the theme of the chapter. Consider how many forks in the road, so to speak, David passes through in these 22 verses. Will David walk by faith in God's promises? Or will he take matters into his own hands? Will David return evil for evil? Or will he love his neighbor as himself? Will David view his circumstances as sovereign? Or will he believe that the Lord is sovereign? At every turn, it seems, David's faith is tested. He's put through the ringer in these 22 verses. And why is that? Why does the Lord take David through this this period of testing? Is it because the Lord has forgotten him? No, not in the least. It's actually just the opposite. The testing of David's faith is the proof of God's ongoing care. It's the proof of God's care. Remember, friends, the Lord has just one recipe for strengthening faith and producing character. He only has one recipe. The refining fire of tests and trials. Tests are purifying like gold is purified and comes out more precious in the end. Tests are strengthening like like steel is heated up so that the strength is stronger at the end of that process. That's why God takes David through this period. Because there's no other way for God to shape him to be the king he needs to be. God just has one recipe. The refining fire of tests and trials. The Lord has not forgotten David. Far from it. It's just the opposite. This is the Lord's kindness to take all the circumstances of David's life and make them purposeful. You know, one of the more terrifying things of of life would be that, that there is no meaning, that it's just random. So it's the kindness of God to take David's circumstances and make them purposeful, to use them for David's everlasting good. And therein lies the connection for our lives, friends. As we watch the Lord work in David's life, we're reminded not to judge God's hand too quickly. We're reminded that the testing of our faith is for our good. And maybe most importantly, we're reminded that humble trust in God's Word is always the best course of action, regardless of the circumstances. So as we look now specifically to this text, you'll notice the chapter divides very neatly into three scenes. You have the encounter in the cave, verses 1-7. to Then David's speech to Saul, verses 8-15. to And finally, Saul's speech to David, verses 16-22. to It divides very neatly into three scenes. And from those scenes, we're going to consider three truths with each one focused on how God works in the life of His servant. How God works in the life of His servant. So truth number one, God's Word clarifies God's will. God's Word clarifies God's will. No one should accuse the Bible of lacking a sense of humor. Verses 1 to 3 set the stage for the entire chapter, but they do so in a humorous way. The mighty Saul has come to En Gedi with his elite troops. 
But before the expedition can get underway, Saul has to answer nature's call. Notice verse 3. The text isn't crass or inappropriate, but it is clear Saul had to go to the bathroom. Now you can imagine little Hebrew children snickering around the dinner table as their fathers told this story. And I, I think that's part of the reason why it's told this way. It's supposed to make you chuckle at Saul's expense. It's a humorous way for the chapter to begin. But it's also humiliating. Notice who else is in the cave. Verse 3, David and his men. Again, the text doesn't mince words. Saul is exposed and therefore humiliated before the very men he's trying to capture. The Lord opposes the proud, friends. That's what you should be thinking here. The Lord opposes the proud. Saul is brought low and he doesn't even know it yet. It's humiliating. David's men, however, don't see this as merely humiliating for Saul. They also see it as providential for David. Notice verse 4. This is the day, they whisper excitedly to David. This is the day the Lord told you about. This is the day when God said He would give your enemy into your hand and you could, you could be done with this. So let's take this guy out and move on. Never mind that we don't have any record of God giving David such a promise. David's men aren't concerned with that little detail. In their minds, the circumstances are just too clear. This is obviously an open door, so take it. Clearly, this is the Lord's will. And for a moment, for a moment, David agrees. Notice what he does at the end of verse 4. He creeps forward and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, why cut a piece of the robe? I was talking with some men from our church earlier this week about this chapter, and one of them asked, why cut a piece of the robe? Well, what's significant about this? Well, as we've seen a number of times in 1 Samuel, a person's clothing signifies his position. Remember in chapter 18 when Jonathan gave his robe to David, and it symbolized Jonathan passing on his position as the heir to the throne? You remember that? Or maybe even more significantly, remember what happened in chapter 15? Saul loses the kingdom, and then Samuel tears his robe out of Saul's hand. It was symbolic of power being torn away from Saul. So back to the cave. David likely has that symbolism in mind when he cuts the corner. It's a symbolic act of taking some of Saul's authority. It may even be so far as a declaration of revolt. And, and let's be honest. Why wouldn't David do this? I mean, just logically. Just think about it rationally. Why would he not do this? God did promise David that he would be the king, and all David is really doing right now is just helping that promise along. It just makes sense, right? It just adds up, right? So for this brief moment, David takes matters into his own hands. It's just too clear. Then comes the key moment of the chapter. Something happens to David that never happens to Saul. David is convicted. Notice again verse 5. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Have you ever had one of those moments where you did something or said something and almost immediately afterwards your stomach goes to knots and you think to yourself, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. 
Well, that's what happens here to David. His heart is struck. That's just another way of saying that he's convicted deeply. And that conviction makes all the difference. The change is immediate. Notice verse 6. Remember, David's got his men urging him to strike. So he has to explain to them why he's not going to do so. But, significantly, the reason has to do not so much with Saul as it does the Lord. Notice again verse 6. Notice who starts David's explanation. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against Him. Friends, do you hear the God-centered nature of David's conviction? David recognizes that it was the Lord who put Saul on the throne, and therefore only the Lord has the authority to remove Saul from that position. Yes, Saul is a rebel. And yes, the Lord has pronounced judgment on Saul. But that's just it. Those are God's responsibilities, not David's. If David kills Saul, he's not just rebelling against the king, he's rebelling against God. That's really the crux of the issue. David has been promised the throne, but he doesn't have the right to demand that that promise adhere to his timetable. He doesn't get to pick when it comes. God's promises must come to pass on God's terms, not ours, or else we're walking in unbelief. Or to put it another way, and maybe this will convict you as much as it does me, there is simply no shortcut to walking by faith. You can't make it go any faster. And if you try, then it's unbelief. By God's grace, David learns the lesson. Let's not breeze past that point, friends. It is always an evidence of God's grace when a believer recognizes his or her sin and quickly turns from it. That's always a reason to rejoice. David recognizes what he's done. He's repentant. He submits to God's ways. And then he restrains his men from sinning against Saul. And so the scene concludes in verse 7 with Saul walking out of the cave because David chose to walk by faith. Brothers and sisters, this test in the cave was not just for David's good. The Lord is using it to teach us something as well. Just because a door opens to us doesn't necessarily mean the Lord wants us to walk through it. Favorable circumstances don't always equal God's will. I like how one pastor, Gordon Ketty, puts it, quote, an open door is not in itself a proof of God's will. Circumstances in God's providence are not a substitute for the principles God has revealed in His Word. End quote. Friends, that is wise counsel. And it's counsel that we need to hear. David has a clear open door to get out of his trouble and all of his instincts would say, take it. But what does God say? That's the issue. What does God say? How does God's Word view this situation? You see, we must remember that it's always God's Word that clarifies God's will. That's not to say that the Bible has a plain yes or no answer to every situation. The Bible's not a magic eight ball. It doesn't have a plain yes or no answer. 
but it is to say that Scripture must reign over our circumstances. And it is to say that the Bible must interpret our opportunities. An open door may mean God is leading us in a certain direction, but even then, even when everything seems to align, it seems to align, even when everything just makes sense, we still must check it against what God has said in His Word. And here's why. Here's, here's why this matters. Our hearts are incredibly subtle and sometimes even sinister. We have this amazing ability to interpret circumstances as leading me to do what I already want to do. How conveniently do we find open doors that advance us down the path we've already decided we're going to go? And all the while, the Scriptures go unchecked, not to mention our motives. The Scriptures go unchecked, and we've missed a key piece of walking by faith. Spiritual maturity is not the ability to see all the steps that take us to the open door. Spiritual maturity is not even the ability to discern all the open doors. Spiritual maturity is submitting each and every step to the counsel of God's Word. God's will is clarified not by our perceptions, not by our, by, not by our feelings, not even by what appears to just make good sense. God's will is clarified only by the Scriptures. Friends, is God's Word that kind of authority in your life? And I don't just mean over what you believe, but over what you want. Do you check your motives, your desires, and yes, even your opportunities against the Scriptures? Is that you? Is that me? It was God's Word, God's truth, that clarified God's will for David's life. And that, brothers and sisters, should compel us once more to orient our lives around the Bible. Well, as we continue on in the chapter, we find David is not finished with Saul. He doesn't take Saul's life. But beginning in verse 8, David does confront him. Now, have you ever been wronged by someone and then spent the next several days having an imaginary conversation of what you might say to that person if you had the chance? I've done that many times, I'm sad to say. And those imaginary conversations are never honoring to the Lord. They always, went, they always end with me looking really awesome and that person looking really dumb. Right? These imaginary conversations. Thankfully, that's not what David does here in chapter 24. David has the real life opportunity to confront his enemy, but he does so in a way that honors God. Now, to be sure, David doesn't hold back. He certainly speaks the truth. I mean, verse 10, he declares that he's innocent. Verse 12, he asks for God's justice. So David doesn't hold anything back. But even when David speaks the truth, he does so with an attitude of humility, with an attitude of godliness. The question then is how? How is David able to speak this way? Why doesn't he just let Saul have it? And I mean, look, let's be honest. Like Part of me wants him to just, just unload on Saul. I mean, vengeance would be so, so easy and so easily justified. This guy is horrible. Just let him have it. Why does he not do that? 
Why does David hold back? Well, the answer, friends, comes from our second truth. God's character shaped God's servant. God's character shapes God's servant. That's the answer. If you pay close attention to David's speech, you'll find that his words are geared much more towards the Lord than they are towards Saul. It's the character of God that governs David's response. Notice with me how this works out in the passage. First of all, notice how God's character is a restraint upon David. After David approaches with humility, he asks Saul, why are you listening to hearsay? Look at verse 9. Saul has no evidence David wants to harm him. All Saul has is gossip. David, on the other hand, has evidence. And it tells a different story. Verse 11. See, my father, the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. You see, David's case is airtight. Saul has hearsay. David has evidence. And the evidence proves David is innocent. But there's one more piece to David's case. Why did he spare Saul's life? What restrained David's hand in the cave? Notice the end of verse 10. I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for, this is the key, for He is the Lord's anointed. Friends, notice David didn't cite Saul's character as the reason why he was restrained. And notice that he didn't claim Saul deserved any mercy. It had, it really, it had nothing to do with Saul. David made, this rela- David made this decision in relationship to the Lord, not in relationship to Saul. God's character restrained David and kept him from sinning against Saul. Friends, how helpful this should be for us as we consider how to live godly lives in this fallen world. The reality is we're going to be sinned against. We're going to be wronged. But if we base our response in those situations on how we've been treated, then we'll quickly end up in sin ourselves. Just think about what David would have done. If he would have made his decision based upon Saul, he would have committed the sin of murder. If, however, we respond based on who God is, then God's character works like a restraint. It keeps us from sin. It holds us back from those natural impulses of the flesh. Only God's character, the truth of who God is, has the power to do this. You see, this is is part of what it means to live a God-centered life. This is why we remind ourselves often that theology is absolutely practical. The more deeply I embrace who God is, the more fully my life will be shaped after His character. Friends, this is, this is the convicting part about what sin says about our hearts. When I give in to sin, it not only says something about how I'm acting, it also says something about how much I know the Lord. How much has His character gone down deep into my soul? The more deeply I embrace who God is, the more fully my life will be shaped after His character. That's how it works. And so when those situations come that we're sinned against, we can find ourselves saying, 
since God is merciful, then what should I give this person in response? Mercy. Since God is patient, how should I respond to my child who will not listen to me? With patience. Since God is just, then what should I say to that person who is dishonest or oppressive towards another human being? I should say the truth. Friends, that's a God-centered life. It's not just knowing theology. It's hiding those truths in your heart so that in every situation, God's character is a safeguard that leads us in the path of godliness. The more deeply I embrace who God is, the more fully my life will be shaped by His character. Now, if you're tracking with me so far, then you might anticipate an objection. The objection goes like this. If I adopt this God-centered approach to life, won't that end up making me a doormat for other people? If I don't take matters into my hands, at least sometimes, aren't people just going to walk all over me? I understand that objection. And that's where the rest of David's speech comes in. Not only is God's character a restraint upon David, but God's character is also a refuge for David. You've got to keep these two together. Notice what David says in verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. Friends, has Saul wronged David? Yes, grievously. Does that wrong require justice? Yes, absolutely. But here's the key. Who's responsible for that justice? Not David, but the Lord. In fact, David closes his speech with the same truth. Look at verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Friends, that's a profound confession of faith. The Lord is David's advocate, his defender, his deliverer. You see, David has learned one of the more valuable lessons of the Christian life. It's better to trust God with how we've been wronged than it is to trust ourselves. It's better to trust God with how we've been wronged than it is to trust ourselves. I don't want to be responsible for justice in my life. I don't trust myself enough. And you shouldn't trust yourself enough either. It's better to trust God with how we've been wronged than it is to trust ourselves. God's justice never fails. There are no appeals in God's court. What He does is always right. So it's better, it's safe for us to leave those things in the Lord's hands. Friends, I don't, I don't want to overstate this, but I do want you to understand, I do want to contend for the fact that this truth is essential for an enduring Christian witness in the world. We, we've, we've got to see God's character as our refuge or else we're not going to have the witness we're called to have. Just think about it for a moment. The Lord Jesus called His followers to radical lives of love for the lost, including even loving your enemies 
and praying for those who persecute you. You don't have to know any Greek to understand that that's hard. That's not natural. It's not easy either. Love your enemies? Pray for people who do wrong to you? If, it, if you don't find yourself asking, how in the world should I do that? You're probably not understanding what Jesus is saying. How, how are we supposed to do that kind of love? Only by taking refuge in the character of God. Only by believing God will right every wrong, either at the cross or on the last day. This moment in 1 Samuel 24 is about so much more than not getting payback. This is about commending the gospel with godly character. The kind of character that causes our enemies to say, wait a second, you're you're not going to hit me back? Why? Tell me a reason for this hope that is in you. Do, Do you see it? This is about commending the gospel. What David is teaching us here is a key. It's foundational for the life of a Christian witness. Countercultural, God-honoring love flows from only one kind of heart. The heart that takes refuge in the character of God. And so the natural question that I have to put before you is, do you know God's character in this way? Are you pursuing God, not just to gain knowledge, but to have His character shape your life and mold your responses. That's the convicting piece of this second truth for me. Remember those imaginary conversations I said a minute ago? David's response looks so different than mine because he's taken the time to know the Lord in a way that I haven't. Read the Psalms. And and you'll read of a man who is deeply acquainted with his God. What about me? Am I pressing on to know God's character? Am I pursuing God in this way? What about you? Are you pursuing the Lord through His Word, through prayer, through the communion of saints in the church? It's not just to say that you're doing the spiritual disciplines. Please understand me. This is about loving your neighbor as yourself. This is essential for Christian witness. This is foundational to discipleship. Are you pursuing God in this way? If you are, then praise God and keep going. That's a short summary for the Christian life. Praise God, keep going. If not, then why not start today? Why not start today? Why not pick up God's Word today and prayerfully ask the Lord to reveal Himself through the Scriptures so that your life begins to look like His character? Start today. God's character shapes God's servant. And by God's grace, may that be true of our church as well. To the glory of God. Well, that brings us to the final scene beginning in verse 16. David has made his case, and now Saul has the opportunity to respond. And it's from Saul's response that we take the final truth. God's righteousness confounds God's enemies. God's righteousness confounds God's enemies. Saul's speech is stunning. For a moment, Saul relents. 
I said relents, not repents. He relents. It doesn't last, and therefore it doesn't appear to be genuine repentance, but for, for a moment, for a moment, some rays of truth break through Saul's hard-hearted rebellion. In fact, that's how we should read this final scene. From Saul's own mouth, we hear the affirmation of God's righteousness. Saul is affirming that God is right. Notice how it plays out in these final verses. To begin with, notice that Saul confirms God's judgment. He confirms God's judgment. Look at verse 17. Saul said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Do you remember what Samuel said to Saul in chapter 15 when he pronounced God's judgment? Samuel said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you this day, and He has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. What has Saul just declared? That David, his neighbor, is more righteous than he is. That's not to say David is sinless, but it is a striking declaration to say that David has what Saul lacks, a heart for God. Saul confirms with his own mouth the righteousness of God's judgment. Saul also confirms God's promise. That might sound strange to say, but notice verse 20. Saul is still speaking, verse 20. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So the very thing Saul has been trying to stop, he now affirms as certainly true. This is the wisdom of God, friends. God's ways are inscrutable, and He causes even the wicked to one day bow down before the unstoppable reality of His Word. You see, that's the unexpected encouragement from verse 20. Saul's unlikely confession should cause us to lift our eyes and embrace by faith that great final day when the people of God are vindicated, the enemies of God are dealt with, and the righteousness of God is celebrated by every creature in heaven and on earth. That day is coming, friends. Can you even imagine such a day? That day is coming. As sure as the sun rises, that day is coming. And therefore, we should be encouraged that our God cannot be stopped. He will exalt King Jesus. And everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of our unstoppable God. Not even Saul can stop his mouth from affirming this. And therefore, we should be encouraged. Before we leave Saul's speech, there's one final piece we should note. Saul confirms God's judgment. He confirms God's word. But that's not the last thing Saul says. Notice what he says in verse 21. He cries out for mercy. He cries out for mercy. Swear to me, therefore, Saul says, by the Lord, that you will not, you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Again, we should not take this as a cry of saving faith, but we should take it as a cry for mercy, nonetheless. And do you know what? David agrees. Verse 22, David swore this to Saul. Saul has no claim to mercy, and yet David, who is the Lord's anointed, grants him what he doesn't deserve. Friends, do you see here the merciful heart 
of the Lord God. His disposition is to show mercy even to those who hate Him. Yes, He has wrath against sin. And yes, He will judge those who rebel against Him forever in hell. But even as Saul remains firm in his unbelief, the Lord grants him this sliver of mercy. Mercy. It could be that you're here today and you've never trusted in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You've never believed that Jesus is the Son of God who died as the sacrifice for sin and through faith in Him you will be saved from the wrath of God. You're here today, but you've never believed that good news. Or maybe you're here today and you've professed faith in Christ sometime way in the past, but for a long time now, you've been far away, even rebellious and hard-hearted towards God. In either case, I pray the Spirit would open your eyes this morning to see the mercy of God that is right now withholding judgment. I I won't mislead you, friend. Sin is horrible. And every sin, including yours and mine, deserves eternity in hell. Sin is much more serious than what we recognize it to be. But the message of the Bible is is not just that God is our judge, but also that God is merciful. This sliver of mercy that He holds out to Saul is the reminder of mercy that He gives you every single day. It's mercy that withholds God's judgment against your sin. It's mercy that restrains that horrible tide of wrath. It's mercy that does that. Why? So that sinners like you and me might come to repentance and faith in Christ. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus today, friend, I would plead with you this morning, don't despise the mercy of God. And don't delay. Turn from sin. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not fail to save all who trust in Him, but He only saves those who trust in Him. Turn from sin. See the mercy of God that right now is giving you breath and belief. God's mercy outpaces even the worst of sinners. And that should cause us to trust Him. Well, as the chapter began, it appeared David might find rest in En Gedi. What he found instead was a crucible of faith. The kingdom David had been promised was there for the taking if he would just go against God's Word and take it. The enemy who had done him so much harm was there for vengeance if David would just reach out his hand to strike. And yet, what did David do? He persevered. And he did so by faith. He did not take the shortcut to the kingdom, but chose instead to honor the Lord by trusting in His Word. He did not return evil for evil, but chose instead to love his enemy. You see, the Lord's testing of David's faith has had its effect. God was indeed shaping this man to be king over his kingdom. But friends, this should make you think of another king who would come later. A descendant of David no less, who endured much greater trials on his way to the throne. He too was tempted to take a shortcut to the kingdom if he would just bow down and worship his enemy. He too had the power to avenge himself if he would just say the words. 
And yet, what did the Lord Jesus do? He persevered. And He did so by trusting Himself to the Father. The Lord Jesus did not take the devil's shortcut in the wilderness, but chose instead to stand on God's Word. And the Lord Jesus did not return evil for evil, but chose instead to pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, the testing of David's faith points us to a greater David, to a greater King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it reminds us that our hope in every test is not ultimately that we will pass them, but that Christ passed His. And He reigns now from heaven's throne. So my friends, may you fix your eyes on this great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may His victory through every trial strengthen you for perseverance. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for revealing Yourself as a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, showing mercy, Father, to generation after generation. We confess that we're here and alive and breathing because You are merciful. And we confess, Father, with great joy in our hearts that the Lord Jesus has put flesh and blood on Your mercy so that as He walked among us, we see the truth, Father, that You are gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. Exalt Him in this world. Father, bring to pass the glory that is due His name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. the day.